Hello everyone, and welcome to the File Room Podcast, a podcast about the X-Files. That is also a desperate attempt to reconnect a friendship across the Atlantic. I'm Edwin Davis. And I'm Michaela Livingston-Banks. If you're new to the X-Files or watching it for the tenth time, watch along with us while we explore the dark corners of the American psyche. Via a TV show from the 90s. So, Michaela, uh, how's things? I know in the intro we kind of like jokingly talk about how this is a desperate attempt to reconnect a friendship, which is 99% a joke. But um, for the 1% of it that is 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 deeply rooted in uh, our concern for our long-term friendship, uh, how are things going with you? <laughs> well, you'll be glad to hear, Ed, that things are going swimmingly. I have mm-hmm. bought a turkey. I am ready for Christmas. Um, obviously that's the main thing. Uh, yeah, otherwise just been doing boring adulting, you know, like painting a kitchen, um, mm. which mainly involved painting myself. Uh, <laughs> it seems I still, I still days later have the paint in my hair. Um, but yeah, living the life, living large. How about you? Yes. I had to do, uh, an adult purchase the other day, which was buying ethernet cable so that I could stretch to a different spot in my apartment for recording purposes <laughs> uh because yeah for people who've never had to record a podcast there's a lot of things that can go wrong and there's a lot of trial and error that goes into eventually so reaching much a situation trial. that works yeah so much trial so much error uh yeah i'm good uh, i was a little sad this week though because of the week that we're recording this it's just been a couple of days since it was announced that uh, the actor andre brower had passed away at the Aww. age of 61 and yeah, that's a real bummer because I think if you had asked me at any point in like the last, say, 15 years or so to name like my fa- one of my favorite actors, he definitely would have been in the top 10. Because I remember when I got really into The Wire and then just went on a, a sort of a rabbit hole through all of David Simon's work and ended up on Homicide Life, Life on the Street, which was the show that he like really broke out on and, and was... I, for my money, one of the best performances in all of television. Like mm. I just followed him for all the years that everything else has done since. And it was so nice seeing him kind of get a huge new audience with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm. So, yeah, so that was that was a real bummer. That's, it's, uh, you know, I think there tends to be a lot of hyperbole when famous people die. Mm. Obviously, people do care about them, but sometimes people like, you feel like it's a little performative. But definitely, like for me, this was definitely one of those, like when John Peel died or whatever, where I just think, oh man, that guy really meant a lot to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so sad to see that he passed away. Uh, but it, it has been quite nice seeing that uh, I, I wasn't alone in like how many people just really connected with his, his work because he does seem to have been one of those guys where not everyone's talking about him, but whenever they see him show up in something, you think, oh man, that guy's great. I'm glad he's in stuff. So mm. it's going to be real sad that he's not going to be in, in more things. There's uh, always a back catalogue to dive into. Perhaps, I don't know, Have you? do you think you've watched it all or do you think there's still things for you to uncover and enjoy? Oh yeah, there's definitely stuff to uncover because he was he was quite prolific. Uh, but I think the thing I really want to watch that people were citing is apparently there was a mini series that he was the lead of called Feath. Feath, yeah, um, which uh, came out in like 2006 on FX and is one of those shows that people point to and say this was is, was quietly one of the best shows on television mm. at the time. But it kind of got drowned out because that was the time when like there were so many shows that were ascendant. 
uh, at that time that it just never got the attention that it deserved. So that's one I feel like I really want to track. I'm going to probably have to track down on DVD because I'm pretty sure it's not streaming anywhere, which is that's the that's kind of like one of the heartbreaking things about it is the homicide life on the street because it had lots of licensed music is not available to stream anywhere yeah. uh, so you have to have it on dvd which i do because i'm uh, a nerd but <laughs> yeah for for all these people who are like outpourings of grief saying oh man this guy was so great and he gave this like transcendent performance on this long-running fairly popular tv show but you cannot watch it anywhere although apparently there are efforts to try and sort those issues out and finally get it on streaming for people yeah. but it's kind of a shame that it would take him dying and this mm. outpouring of goodwill for that to happen yeah. Streaming, not not a not a great uh, distribution network. It has to be said for a lot of things. Yeah, I was wondering. Of, sorry. Oh, sorry, go on. No, you go. You go ahead. I was just gonna say, I wonder if there was any point of me keeping my big wallet full of DVDs <laughs> stacked up in the cupboard. Um, but perhaps there is a good reason for hanging on to them. Yeah, I mean, I, not to kind of get on a soapbox about physical media, but it is so easy for stuff to get taken down off of services. Mm-hmm. Services can go bust, you know, occasionally, which can lead leave stuff in limbo. I know that there was a show, there was a a uh, service over here called CISO, which was around for like a year or so, which was basically a network that was set up pretty much just to encourage all of these different, like, comedians who had built audiences online through podcasts and things like that to make shows that they wanted and so all these uh all these really funny people made a lot of really interesting funny shows and then the service got cut down shut down because no one bothered to pay for it and so a lot of those shows are kind of in limbo they've like they show up on other services occasionally some of them had seasons filmed that never seen the live day yeah so like that's one of those things where I say uh, it's definitely worth having physical media because some stuff just gets lost completely. So yeah, so if you have physical media, uh, it's it's worth keeping out. Maybe put it in a binder. That's what I do with mine. Yeah, as well. yeah, put yeah, mine yeah. All they're all they're cause... all in a, a, a you know a special DVD wallet, including yeah. nine seasons of the X Files. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Santa's going to bring me two more. I don't know if I want Santa to bring me those two. But anyway, <laughs> I'm a completionist. As we know, so like, <laughs> I feel like I have to have it all. Yeah, I I used to be a completionist. I've become a little better about it. I think that the, the breaking point for me was the the TV show Friday Night Lights, where famously the first season of that show is incredible, and seasons three, four, and five are incredible. Seasons two is very bad because it happened. It got cut down by the writers' strike. They made a lot of choices that were ill advised in terms of the plot and having certain characters become murderers for some reason but <laughs> why not um, yeah why not um although the character in question was played by jesse plemons who has since gone on to play like you know todd in breaking bad and things like that so you know it was good early training for him in some of his subsequent roles but um yeah it, it that's one where when i bought that show on dvd i thought i can i can not watch season two they pretend it doesn't exist i can as well um but yeah, like I, I definitely understand that impulse to think, even if some of this stuff doesn't necessarily hold up, you you want to have it all. You want to have that sense of I have it all, even if I don't like all of it. Absolutely. But yes, like you said, you have the X Files on DVD. This is a podcast about the X Files. 
uh, in our previous episode we kind of introduced us talked about who we are why we're and kind of created a little uh, talked a little bit about the context of where television was before the x-files started and now we're getting into the series proper this episode we're going to be talking about the pilot episode of the x-files imaginatively co- named Sorry. imaginatively titled pilot well yeah it gotta be simple haven't it really yeah i always thought the funniest version of that was just uh the the pilot for lost being called pilot and that a pilot very f- prominently features in it yeah it's just like okay yeah at least they have a reason for not coming up with a they have an in-universe reason for that being the title at least well and the next episode of the x-files could have been called pilot but anyway <laughs> yeah after a cold open in which a young girl is chased through some dark and mysterious woods and is abducted by a figure uh, illuminated in white light, Special Agent Dana Scully arrives at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., where she is assigned to join and essentially spy on the X-Files, a division of the FBI that investigates paranormal and unexplained cases. And as part of that, she meets her partner, Fox Mulder. They have a little bit of uh, banter in which Mulder very quickly sizes up why she's there and then they set out on their first case together where they go to Oregon to investigate the disappearance and death of the girl seen in the cold open as well as a a series of other mysterious happenings in the small town. So as we were saying this is the pilot, it's the first episode that was uh, produced obviously to kind of like sell the show and which you know pilots are, are weird in that regard in that there's almost a sense where they're not necessarily meant to be seen by regular audiences. Mm. The the audience for the show is executives who you're trying to convince to pay for the show. So I think when assessing a pilot, you, you kind of have to assess it on slightly different metrics to how you would assess most episodes of television. Uh, so I think uh, in the case of this pilot, you know, the, th- the three things I would kind of assess it on are how well does it, kind of set up the world introduce you to the characters how good is it as a t- episode of tv in its own right and sort of how much of the show in terms of like tone is there because you you do occasionally get series where uh, the example i always go to is parks and recreation where the pilot to that show like feels so completely different from what the show would eventually become that even though it it does reasonably well on the first two it kind of fails on the third mm. i think I think this pilot is pretty good on all three, I think. Um, what, what do you think about the, the pilot in, in those terms? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it, it hits all of those three really well. I mean, something I sort of thought whilst I was watching is that this has everything. Like, this is an X-Files episode. Um, they go to good good, not like talk at you till you're bored but actually you know we get to know the characters and we Mm. get a little bit of backstory in their introductions but then obviously as the episode goes on you you very clearly see where each of them are coming from and what the dynamic between them is um and it's really it's quite pacey like it moves on really well um i don't think there was any you know kind of boring dead air kind of bits in there at all much like this podcast Um, (laughs) yeah no I think it hit them them really well yeah it definitely surprised me I think maybe not surprised me but so, so much reminded me of how different 
perfectly paced television used to be in like mm. the pre-streaming era mm-hmm. the the joke that is often made about streaming television shows which has become i think more true as time has gone on is it sometimes feels like the first season is the pilot yeah. but you get to the end of 10 12 episodes or whatever and then you reach the point where you think oh it, it finally feels like they've established the premise and the show can really start whereas this it really is you know they meet within the first five minutes within the first 10 minutes they're they're out on a case yep. you have a really strong like you say you they have a really strong sense of their dynamic you get sort of a sense over the course of the episode of, of things happening in the background you know it, it's obviously not at the stage where it can delve into like the broader conspiracy that comes to shape mm. so much of the show later but there is definitely a sense uh, that you can't really trust anyone mm-hmm. which is obviously a huge uh, part of the show going forwards and yeah it just it just really really moves and even by the the end of the episode to kind of like jump ahead you know you get not confirmation that it's all aliens you know that the show is is very smart in being somewhat ambiguous about that yes very. but you do get to a point where Mulder has witnessed something paranormal, mm-hmm. something that can't necessarily be explained. There's no like coyness about it. They're they're very much saying, you know, this is what the show is. We're not gonna kind of um string you along and make you think, oh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Like they the show is is very heavily on the idea that something strange is going on here, even if it may not necessarily spell it all out, which again is is to Chris Carter, who obviously created the show and wrote the pilot, to his credit, really. Yeah. Although, to my mind, whilst it's very clearly showing that Mulder has experienced something, like, it is doing that thing where Scully at the end is reporting that, you know, nothing conclusive was Mm. found and she couldn't corroborate a lot of what he was saying. So, like, in that intention that Chris Carter had of you know, that space between faith and hard science evidence and, and the kind of tension between that, it, it like, you know, not just between the two characters, one believes, one doesn't, but like how much it shows and how much it doesn't show is quite interesting. Um, but the, yeah, the one thing you do leave with a, some clear sense of is that there there is some sort of cover-up going on, but the only thing we know for sure is that it's a very human cover-up. You know, it's essentially parents trying to cover up what their teenagers have been involved in. That's, But it begs many more questions. Um, and, you know, Mulder experiences something and there are lots of strange things going on. So, you know, it leaves... I think it leaves many, many mysteries more open. It's the sort of thing, like, I wish I could have gone in completely blank not remembering the rest of the x-files completely but it's the sort of thing if i had if that had been the first episode that i had watched i can imagine myself kind of thinking oh what's going on here and that would have compelled me to come back again Mm, yeah it's very enticing yeah which is certainly what you want from all pilots really to act as something to lure people in but particularly a show like this which relies so heavily on a sense of mystery and the unknown you you kind of want to let people know that something strange is happening but not necessarily play your hand too early so that they feel like they've got everything they could possibly get out of it and they won't tune in the next week yeah yeah 
Um, I think what's quite clever about this this episode, which doesn't happen in the rest of them, um, but you know, it starts off with the words of you know, this is based on mm-hmm. actual documented evidence or whatever, it, you know, something along those lines, um, mm. and so kind of making you think like, oh, what's going on here? Um, I find it was funny. I find that interesting. Of is this on the basis of like an actual case study of like a criminal or whatever case or because our you know in interviews with chris carter he talked about having come across like what is it some like public survey where i don't know was it like three percent of american public say they've had some sort of or maybe it wasn't that much but that like some percentage of the american public had said that they'd had some sort of abduction experience so is it based loosely on that general kind of stuff and those general stories or is it like an actual case i don't mm. know i the sense that i get is that it is more based on the feeling like that you're saying like people say that they've experienced abductions there had been abduction stories told in fiction or you know tend people things claiming to be you know, dramatization yeah. of things that had actually happened, most famously at this point, probably the movie Fire in the Sky, which had come out a few years earlier, which is, you know, one of the more famous alien abduction stories purporting to be based on a real case. And mm. I think has some distinct similarities to this in some of the imagery that you see of the actual, like, abduction stuff happening. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the big influence over a lot of, ufo alien abduction fiction is steven spielberg's close encounters of the third kind so which itself was i think drawn from sort of the 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 general stories of abduction that were in the ether in pop culture so i don't think this was necessarily based on a specific incidence so much as it was that a lot of people have somewhat similar stories of being abducted Mm -hmm. over the years and so there are lots of different tropes of it yeah. that you can you can pull from yeah yeah i mean obviously lights lost time things like that are all you know as you say tropes essentially of of those kind of stories um i guess a good question to ask at this point as well because i because i think how you watch and how you interpret both this episode and all of the x-files really kind of depends on how well whether or not you believe in these things yourself and and you know Mulder straight up asks Scully at the beginning of this episode do you believe in extraterrestrials so Ed do you believe in extraterrestrials I do believe in the sense that I think the universe is so grand and beyond our comprehension that the idea that earth is the only place where there's intelligent life just mathematically doesn't seem possible to me. It seems like there should be more life out there. And obviously, you know, there's various things about reports of studies of stuff on Mars, which mm-hmm. may have had life at some point or whatever. But, you know, I, it, so I, I tend to be on the side of saying there probably is life in the universe. The question of have we been visited by aliens, I think is harder to argue the case for. I think... 
there's lots of plausible explanations, some of which, in fact, are covered somewhat in the very next episode the, the, of The X-Files, the ideas of it maybe being secret government mm-hmm. stuff that's going on. That stuff I find more easy to believe, the idea that particularly the US government ha- you know, have done various things with experimental mm-hmm. aircraft and that's what people are seeing and, and things like that. But, yeah, I think I, t- I tend to... I, I tend to think that, yeah, aliens probably do exist. I don't necessarily think they have, like, visited Earth um, at all. Um, and that there's probably other explanations for the sort of stories they inspired this, this episode of The X-Files. Basically, same here. Um, the, you know, it's Fermi, the Fermi paradox, you know. The universe is so huge, so given the numbers of star systems and planets and everything over not infinite time but you know billions of years the likelihood of there not being other life out there and particularly intelligent life is small but equally because the universe is so huge the chances of you know intelligent life existing at the same time and having the technology to cover those vast distances is pretty slim um but it's quite interesting in this back and forth, which is like the first kind of, you know, Mulder being the 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 kind of one who who believes, and Scully being the the kind of more science based person who doesn't. Um, mm. So she she comes back at him with this kind of like logical explanation, you know, much like yours, and then Mulder states along the lines of, if there's no other explanation, then maybe you have to look at the fantastical, and mm. and Scully says that she thinks it's fantastical that anything um, would go beyond science or, or something like that. And it's just funny to me where you think that science has the answers because, of course, science is a way of... is one particular way of, if, of getting evidence to support things, but it's not the be-all and end-all. So... And we don't have the... We don't have the means to measure everything, so... I'm going to put out there to say that I'm very much on the side of using science, but also science doesn't answer absolutely everything because we we can't do that right now. So I'll leave the door open that like there's a tiny possibility that aliens are about and somehow we don't know about it because anything is possible. Mm. I'll go with that. That's my stance. Anything yeah, is possible. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I definitely think that there is the possibility it's it's slim, but un- until there's like absolute confirmation of it, yeah. you can't necessarily jump to that as the uh, conclusion. But like you said, this episode is very good for that sort of stuff, for that kind of dialectic between Mulder and Scully. You, you said, like you said, you get it in that first scene together where they've met. Mulder has very quickly sized up who scully is and also you get a sense that they have some knowledge of each other when she's being she's talking to her superiors she talks about how he had a nickname at the academy you know he's known as spooky, spooky Mulder. so you have a sense that he is he is somewhat notorious mm-hmm. within the fbi already uh and he mentions that he's read her thesis and things like that so clearly there's a a, a shared knowledge of who each other is even yeah. though they're meeting for the first time it seems I, um, I want to know why Scully in medical school did a thesis about Einstein like physics is that a thing that mm. happens in America do you study physics at medical school uh, well I know that obviously I didn't 
go to school here so i i but my understanding is there's like major and minoring so right. like you so it, in my example you know uh, obviously I, I majored in history over in in the uk uh, but over here like you could major in history and then you'd have a minor in you know english lit or, or something or you know like something completely unrelated so it, it doesn't strike me as too fantastical especially if as the series kind of argues you know she is incredibly intelligent the yeah. idea she would have varied interests and also just from a pure plot mechanic you kind of do need her to be interested in both medical yeah, stuff and a broader yeah, range stuff, of science like. yeah because she is science and all of this but i would mm-hmm. if if i had had a chance um to to minor in something so i majored in um genetics was was my degree and then i carried on to do molecular biology um as a phd but i also you know really love reading about you know physics and everything else too so like i i could imagine i would have done that um yeah i was gonna make a point of uh (laughs) this this uh this compound that they find in these teenagers Mm. so these teenagers who've been um supposedly abducted that they all have they all share this these weird marks on their back like little raised red welts um and obviously when they've gone to sort of take a sample of this they found this mysterious molecule and Mulder brings it up on um what i have to note is a very fuzzy overhead slide um these overhead projectors technology mm. of of past um i bet i bet police and stuff still use these but anyway he brings this up and uh it's a completely unremarkable <laughs> um amino acid um peptide chain um yeah the the r's if you go back and look at it the r's just represent any of the amino acids so Mm. it's not even a specific thing um yeah i just found that amusing but i'm not gonna pick apart minor science like this all the time or will i (laughs) i probably will i can't help it yeah, it's one of those things where it's you know it's a pilot episode. Yeah. I'm sure they they probably didn't have enough resources to kind of go out and get a science advisor and say, hey, could you come up with a, an amino acid that doesn't exist for us? That'd be really helpful. <laughs> yeah, they've just gone to some textbook and gone peptide, boom, that'll do. Yeah, <laughs> it, it reminds me one of my favorite things about um, Future Armor was because most of the writers on that show all well people had like PhDs in various sciences and mathematics anytime they would have some sort of scientific formula or something on the boards like they always knew that they were correct and I'm pretty sure there's one where there's meant to be like an unsolvable like mathematical theorem or something and yeah there's always one of the writers on that show who would have to sit there and be like okay is this all correct <laughs> which is, is probably an indication of why that show has had such a stop-start life that they're kind of so busy kind of like stressing out over that sort of stuff that they maybe didn't figure out how to make it appealing to people other than me but um but you know there is someone out there that well yeah but you know there's someone out there me who's not not usually me but there's someone out there going i'll think you'll find and these (laughs) days um i mean there there would have been some internet chat boards back in 93 i'm sure but like these days on reddit and 
in fact, I know because I did look to see if anyone else had noticed this. And mm. I did love one comment, which I assume is from like a chemist, is just, oh, just this peptide, you know, with 8,000 different <laughs> very possible variations. Um, yeah, I think you'd be pulled apart these days on things like that. But, you know, I love sci-fi. And part of it is the suspension of disbelief and part mm. of it is the techno babble. And so you just kind of have to go along with a lot of these sorts of things sometimes. Yeah, I think what's quite nice about this episode in, in that regard, and also probably why the show, certainly in these early, early days, was able to find not like a, a massive audience, but like a decent enough one for it to continue, was that the techno babble is relatively kind of like pushed to the background and mm -hmm. also the techniques that Mulder uses to investigate are very lo-fi and understandable yep. like uh, at one point they're driving uh, through the rain and they experience nine minutes of lost time and the way they indicate that is you know like he he's looking at his watch and he notices the time has changed he's got a compass that is spinning around wildly to indicate that some sort of electromagnetic uh, disturbance is happening and then at the end of it, you know, he goes out on the road and he sees that an X that he had marked earlier um, has appeared. So he knows that they must have been driving during this point, during this this period of lost time to have ended up where the X is. And that all is, I think, very effectively communicates the, the phenomena in a way that doesn't rely on the sort of special effects that, for the most part, didn't actually really exist in 1993, at mm. least not on the budget that something like this episode mm. of the x-files had which would only have been about two million dollars mm. which but, seems but, like a lot of money but i'm sure it doesn't go mm. very far in the tv world yeah and I, I think it's you know some of the effects in this episode they're fairly limited it basically is concentrated around the abduction scenes where you have like swirling leaves and, and bright lights and stuff like that uh, i found that stuff to be like relatively effective still mm -hmm. i think probably because yeah. a lot of it is is mostly practical so that stuff just ages reasonably well anyway. Yeah. But yeah, it, it kind of gets across what they're going for, even if I'm sure if you had given Chris Carter like better technology and un unlimited money, they would have gone for something more impressive. But I think it gets across the feeling that they want to get of how like an abduction would feel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, that was one of the things watching it is, I mean, it's it's obvious visual effects right uh well you know yeah it's it's some sort of special effects um but equally for the time i thought it looked really good it was very very effective hmm. yeah definitely uh, and i think the director robert uh mandel who um at this point was was best known for the movie fx and uh, school ties which come out the years year before i think does a, a really good job he the show is, uh, I think, a little more naturalistic than it would become in terms of its visual style. Mm. It kind of looks a little closer to a straightforward police procedural, but that's fine. Obviously, they're still trying to figure out what the show is going to be, but uh, it, it still like looks very nice. Those effects are very well done, and I think he gets like good performances out of all of the actors. Obviously, the main two who are, you know, already feel quite dialed in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the various townspeople and, and, and people they encounter, like the, the traumatised abducted girl that they talk to later on, like she gives a really good performance. Yeah. You get a real sense that she's someone who something very bad has happened to and she's very scared. 
Uh, and I think a lot of those things go very far to establishing the credibility of the world they're creating. Uh, yeah, and yeah, to kind of go back to kind of uh, things happening in the plot uh, at this point, like you said earlier, a, a big part of the episode is the sense of it being a very small-scale cover-up because a lot of the kids that are involved are kids of the local dignitaries, like the sheriff, the uh, mortician uh, or doctor, you know, who, who wrote the autopsies and things mm-hmm. like that of people who have died. Uh, and I think that sense of very human, very small-scale conspiracy is really well conveyed. It doesn't feel like the show is getting too far ahead of itself, which, again, for a pilot, is what you want, really. What I think is really interesting in terms of the balance they strike with this is is kind of setting it up as though there could be something um, really fantastical and big going on, but at the same time, you know, it's really honed in on the individual townspeople mm. and and that kind of small circle of people who are all involved in things like that um yeah so the the medical examiner who is covering something up presumably because you know his mate the detective is it's his son who's involved and they know he's involved the fact mm. that then there's this bright light that we don't see what's going on there i mean the only kind of we have a couple we see a couple of versions of bright lights one is you know they're in the forest at night um you know to investigate what's going on in the forest why are these teenagers going to the the forest and and having these experiences um and then there's a a bright light and a noise um and it turns out to be the detective's very noisy um (laughs) pickup truck with like you know, floodlights on the front of it. The second time, we don't see an explanation for it, but everyone's looking up. So, you know, maybe that leads you to believe something like that. Um, But yeah, I think it plays very well in that kind of giving a little, but not everything. Yeah, it's definitely good at at suggesting things that it can't depict mainly because of budget and also like storytelling even if like we were talking earlier it moves along very quickly and you mm-hmm. do feel as if the show has, has very rapidly gets to the pace, place where something paranormal has been seen but also in terms of Mulder and Scully's relationship by the end of the episode you do get a sense that they have come to trust each other yeah. and, and that there is some closeness there um, it doesn't feel like it's zooming too far ahead or that it's you know um telling too much of the story like it needs to leave a a little to the audience's imagination just to it like i was saying earlier to entice them to come back the following week yeah yeah and i and i guess part of that is you know we hear more about Mulder, like what's motivating Mulder in this like why does why is he why does he believe these stories like where has he come across them and so Mm. um right in the first episode we learn about um the disappearance of Mulder's sister the fact that he'd got um regression hypnotherapy and you know he describes the kind of bright lights and and his sister being gone and everything and and obviously that that kind of crops up throughout the the x-files is you know 
he's just absolutely driven by all this so yeah like basically i think the way it's told he tells the story is that essentially he happened upon these these files with these stories these cases of of um people claiming they'd been abducted and because it fit with his experience he just like dove in um so i i think it was actually really neat to have that motivation kind of connected up like right from the first episode um yeah and speaking of their relationship um Mm -hmm. so i I spoke about this before about how they're you know the whole will they won't they thing between Mulder and scully um and how supposedly the intention had been that they were meant to just have a strictly professional and platonic relationship um but you can in this episode you can very much see why maybe people would be like "Ooh, what's going on with them because Mm. um so basically as far as i can tell they've known each other for like 24 hours at some point in the episode scully's getting ready to have a bath or a shower or something and she feels that she has something on her back um obviously from having seen the uh marks on on the kids and stuff she freaks out and she goes through to Mulder's motel room in just her, her underwear um she puts a robe oh, on oh she puts a robe to... on she puts yeah. the robe on but um she goes through <laughs> and she's just like Mulder what are these so this male colleague who she's known for less than 24 hours she's already in her underwear and um so I found uh what I believe to be a, a script for this online for the episode online and um i would say it's written very sensuously but it also mm. uses the term that you know so it says that Mulder bends down to like take a closer look um and notices her trembling buttocks uh, <laughs> which i thought was quite kind of funny um but also they did cut out the f- in in this episode uh scully had had a boyfriend um, and there mm. were scenes in that script that's that you can find online that aren't in the episode, obviously, because we never see this boyfriend. So whilst Chris Carter talks about um, the intention being that this would be a very kind of professional platonic kind of relationship, it is, and I, and I don't know how much other writers or whoever might have affected the, the script and then the episode, but... It kind of seems like there's a bit of at least a little intention that maybe there's there could be something going on between them two. Yeah, and I think there's also some of the, the more kind of crass commercial element of like trying to offer a little bit of the hint of sex to it. Yeah. Like obviously you know, this is network TV in the 90s. There's only so much you can do in terms of, you know, kind of like showing intimacy on screen or whatever. But they go about as far as they could do, uh, you know, in a primetime thing of like, she is very scantily clad. Yeah. He is kind of being very intimate with her and kind of examining her body and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is is that I, I assume... <clears throat> I assume there were notes from Fox saying that they needed to up the ante that as well. You know, Fox had something of a reputation at that point Mm. for being sort of a little bit trashy and and this is by you know this is a a fairly i would say um restrained show when it comes to that sort of thing absolutely 
that that definitely feels like maybe there was like someone <laughs> made a note saying could we have you know a little bit of sex appeal that we can kind of like sell the show on yeah um, for whatever reason or or maybe suggested he put that in to appeal to the executives yeah well well it, it does feel a little out of place with much of the show at least in the early years like there's not really that many scenes similar to that like their connection is a lot more suggestive than this which does feel like it's edging more into exploitation although they play it so well and you 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 believe their connection that it doesn't feel like totally ridiculous but yeah. it, it it does feel it feels ridiculous in terms of what we know of the show and their relationship going forward yeah i think well it what what you're saying kind of makes sense in in terms of um some of the stuff i read about who they the kind of actor they wanted to play mm. scully so um yeah do you know who who they wanted no i remember reading uh in advance of this that there were lots of various people that they looked at for scully like dukovny for Mulder was I think set in stone fairly early on, like mm. that he seemed to really impress Chris Carter. Obviously, he impressed the, the network executives, but Scully, they were not necessarily sold on Gillian uh, Anderson. So they, they, it, I think Carter had to kind of like fight for her. So no, I don't know who they might have been looking for for that role. Otherwise, yeah. Well, the the thing that I um, came across was that they. And I think this was a specific, not someone like this, but that they wanted Pamela Anderson. Because, <laughs> I mean, they said they right. wanted someone who was blonder and leggier and sexier type kind of thing. Obviously, not that Gillian Anderson isn't a very attractive woman um, mm-hmm. anyway. But, you, yeah, I guess it all kind of makes sense if... You know, there was the original Chris Carter's original kind of conception of these two in their relationship, and then there's the TV execs trying to get a bit of bit more sexiness into what otherwise I'm sure on paper could have seemed like quite a boring procedural type thing. But um, mm. though these days I'm sure we've proven that, that this kind of kind of like thriller, you know, investigative thing can be really compelling and interesting good tv Mm. yeah i can definitely imagine the trade-off in chris carter's head or or maybe dealing with the executives is like they want someone like pamela anderson he obviously thinks that uh, jillian anderson is the right person for it uh so he's kind of like well you know maybe we write in a scene where we get to show off that she's a very attractive woman <laughs> and and that she can kind still of mollif- be wearing clothes and attractive i think we can agree yeah. on that although in the 90s with the boxy tailoring yeah there's some there's some real <laughs> um square shoulders there are in, in this episode the shoulders are real ones. the shoulder pads are real um yeah also i, I forgot to mention this earlier but um like we said, uh, Robert Mandel directed this episode, and he, you know he's kind of a veteran film and TV director, but he's very important in our friendship. Oh, how's that? Because he directed the movie Hysteria, the Def Leppard story, which is <laughs> a television movie that I remember watching with you at university. I think it probably in parts on YouTube because it was back when YouTube could only do ten minutes at a time. Yeah, where it. It's so you and I both went to university in Sheffield in the north of England. Def Leppard famously 
uh, a band from Sheffield. Mm -hmm. And that movie starts with uh, a recreation of the drummer from Def Leppard's car accident, which cost him his arm, which famously took place uh, on on Snake Pass, a windy, very dangerous... I mean, I mean, dangerous if you're driving fast. a, A road you'd imagine that you know is called snake pass yeah. is as windy as it sounds yeah windy narrow big lakes either side of you a lot of the time and mountains and things like that it's not a road that you would drive really fast down and that's why he had his accident yeah but in the movie it is very clearly shot somewhere in north america i think vancouver <laughs> when i looked online to see filming locations and it's so obviously filmed in vancouver and i remember you and I and our other housemates at the time watching it and just cracking up at how obviously not shot in England the movie is. And it just reminds me of the joke from Austin Powers 2, where it's like, isn't it remarkable how much England looks nothing at all like Northern California? (laughs) It's just that for an entire movie. Yeah, I know. It's that funny thing. I, I get a little excited when things are on TV that are set in places that I know really well. Um, mm. but invariably they might have a few shots here and there. Um, but they but they just do not feel like the place that you know. And like obviously that movie is just like literally everything about it. Like the buses, the the factories where they worked, like just nothing like England, let alone Sheffield. So yes, that was very funny. Ah, well that's a good that's a good it's a small it's a small uh, TV world, TV movie world. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and yeah, in terms of things not feeling right when you know the locations, there's a, there's an Arctic Monkeys video for the song "Leave Before the Lights Go On," which has, has always had that for me because the, the 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 start and end of that video are shot on top of the showroom in Sheffield where I worked for many years and. There, it's Paddy Considine and uh, Kate Ashfield from Shaun of the Dead are on a roof. She's about to jump off. He kind of like talks her down and then they go and sit for, they go to a cafe. But if you know anything about Sheffield, the cafe they go to is like on, I think, Abbeydale Road, which is quite a way away. So Mm. it was always very funny watching that, imagining you've talked someone down from the roof and you're just like going, no, we'll go to a cafe. No, not that one. Not that one. No, no, I know a good one. We'll walk for an hour after we've had this big thing. We'll walk for an hour. (laughs) That'll do it. Walk it off. Walk it off. Yeah. So that that always um, struck me as very funny. And and I know people from Chicago who like talk about that way about um, like all of the Batman films that shoot in Chicago, where obviously... those films take place in Gotham City, but mm. they're all shot in Chicago. Anyone yeah. who knows anything about Chicago is just like, yeah, none of these roads that they're driving on connect together. It's just completely insane. I thought, I thought Batman was filmed in Toronto. Uh, I don't know. Some parts of it may have been, but for the most part, it's shot in it's shot in Chicago. Oh well, maybe some of them were because, like, when I went to visit Toronto, like, I feel like it was a big deal. Like, you knew it because it was on the signs of the roads or something. Maybe I'm... I mean, a lot of stuff shoots in, in Toronto, so... Well, yeah, but okay, maybe I'm misremembering something. I'll have to go look that up. Uh, but speaking of Canada, obviously this episode is shot in Vancouver, yep. as much of the first five seasons of the show uh, were shot. In um, the foreword to the book Monsters of the Week by Zach Candlin and Emily St. James, which is a, a great kind of compendium of reviews and interviews about the uh, the x-files 
uh, which uh, I've been reading as we've been going along and has been a great help for background information and mm. stuff. Um, Chris Carter writes the foreword for that book and he talks about how the thing that really drew them to Vancouver was the trees because when they were looking for locations for the pilot, they wanted a specific feeling to the tr- the forest that the, the, the characters would be spending so much time in and they couldn't find any in California that had that the right vibe they were going for and then they went to Vancouver because I think his wife had filmed a project in Vancouver years ago and mm. he remembered the forests were like had that that same kind of sense of menace to them beauty and menace which mm. is I think the the thing that you walk away from and yeah I think Vancouver becomes such an important part of the atmosphere of those first few seasons of the X-Files and a lot of that comes through in this episode where you have this contrast between like the small town life which feels kind of quite quaint and then the almost like primordial sense of isolation and dread that happens anytime anyone goes into the forest Mm. well forests are pretty scary in the dark they just are um Mm. i like camping i like camping in forests i recently went camping but we arrived at night which Mm -hmm. And it it just struck me because I've never arrived at a forest at night at night before. But yeah, we arrived. It was dark, like properly dark, and you could not see further than your wherever your head torch was going. And the guy was like, "Oh, the toilets are right over there, but maybe wait until the morning to find them." And I was like, "Oh, if they're right there, I should be able to see them." Could not see them. Next day like it just felt so so different but it like and i and i walked a little bit out to see if i could find these toilets but it's so easy to get turned around like even in a woodland campsite um so yeah they're they're just i think inherently a spooky kind of place so perfect Mm. backdrop and i'm sure very useful for when you're you know shooting tv film whatever because it's very easy to get separated from people and that obviously happens in this episode you know Mulder kind of runs off and him and Scully get separated especially at the end and you know Mulder sees things that Scully doesn't um so so yeah it's it's a useful prop for for a tv filmmaker type person yeah and location shooting like adds instant production values to anything if you you're in a real place and you know it obviously lends a lot of authenticity to it that wouldn't be nearly as much if you were doing stuff on a soundstage or whatever yeah uh, whilst also being comparatively quite cheap i think another reason probably why vancouver probably meant a lot to them and, and various writers have talked about this is like you know, the the uh, amount of money that you have for production could kind of stretch a bit further in Vancouver or at least you could at that point mm. in the 90s because I don't think it had become it certainly hadn't become as like gentrified and expensive to live as it now is um, from what I understand of, of people who live in Vancouver but also it wasn't quite the hub for production that I think the X-Files helped it make mm. helped make it so there is definitely a sense that it was you know a cheap place to go and shoot mm. so if you have a pretty ambitious television show like the x-files that wants to tell a lot of different kind of supernatural stories it helps to think okay we're in a place where our budgets can you know every dollar can stretch a little bit further when it's turned into loonies and toonies yeah and um i was glad to read that they didn't actually 
burn down a small town motel in this episode. Mm. So uh, obviously, obviously, at one point, um, all of their evidence that they've collected so far gets burnt. Um, their motel room gets burnt down. But apparently, this was just like an extra... Um, Pan, I don't know, some sort of fire panel or something they, they they put in into this motel. And the thing is, I was watching knowing this, and yet I was looking at it and I was like, that, but that really looks like it's on fire. So that was, mm. that was amazing. That was good. That was good. But yeah, I'm glad they didn't burn down like some small town motel or any motel to, to do that. Uh, one of the things we have yet to mention uh, is that obviously the two main characters that were introduced that are going to be in the series for much of its run are obviously Mulder and Scully. Mm -hmm. The other character that is introduced in this, admittedly, he doesn't say any lines, but he certainly makes an impression, is the cigarette smoking man. Mm -hmm. Who, And, you know, we we don't want to kind of like talk about spoilers or anything for anyone who's watching the show for the first time. But uh, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say he's someone who, like, shows up again and kind of becomes... Uh, a somewhat important figure over the course of the series um, and it's always weird watching this being like oh yeah like there he is just in the first episode but all he's really cast for is the fact that he has you know William B. Davis who plays him he just has like a real presence yeah. to him like just having him standing in the background during the scene uh, lends a certain air of kind of um, disquiet to things yeah you can't imagine him being anything other then quite powerful like imagine the audacity Mm. of being like an assistant or something who's meant to be there taking notes but instead you're just kind of leaning up against a filing cabinet chain smoking Mm. (laughs) so this guy clearly like we, we don't really know he doesn't say anything he's not referred to he's just there like people people shoot glances at him scully does um so i mean it could have been that they wanted he was an assistant but like your brain is telling you there's no way this guy isn't like powerful yeah and that's hammered home again at the end where he is shown taken the file that scully has written up of their sort of misadventure and puts it away in a filing cabinet in the pentagon and you think oh something's something's going on here and you know he he may not necessarily be like the most important part part in this conspiracy but he obviously is important to it in some Mm. and there definitely is a conspiracy like the the government are definitely suppressing the evidence of something going on yeah that's for for a character who is only doesn't have any lines in the episode and only is in like three scenes you know the first scene then he walks past scully again when she kind of is giving her report and then shown in the pentagon at the end um he makes like a huge impression yeah. and you can you can see why even though he uh, william b davis wasn't necessarily uh, intended to like come back and play that character a bunch you can see why they maybe thought yeah we should bring this by guy back <laughs> he he just has the look for what we need in a kind of shady government figure yeah i guess that's a point worth making as well is that um you know it's it's not just the file it's the one bit of evidence that scully managed to keep which was Mm. you know this this weird metal implant that um was taken out of the weirdly rotted slash replaced corpse of of one of the teenagers from their nasal cavity which again Mm. crops up again in the future of the show um and 
yeah it's like we we can for sure just see very clearly because thankfully they've put them in clear boxes <laughs> that you know he pulls out this box and um this file box and he puts in this implant that we've seen and you can see there are like four or five other ones so it's like clearly something that they know about um i do sometimes i love watching these things and just going like why on earth would so and so do this or why would they keep them in a plas a see-through plastic box rather than you know a, a cardboard one an opaque cardboard box but this is the magic of storytelling. <laughs> mm. You can show us things without having to tell us them. And I I just enjoyed that, it's all. The little things, mm. I enjoy that. Like um, Peggy, was it? Yeah, Peggy, one of the teenage girls um, who who's alive in the episode. We have to know she can't walk. So at some point, she's in a wheelchair next to Billy Miles' bed. Um, and at some point, she freaks out. And she falls out of her wheelchair. So we get to see she cannot walk. Uh, and later on in the episode, it transpires that she ran out in front of a lorry and gets killed. Um, but it's important that we know that this is weird because she couldn't walk. Um, mm. So all these little weight mechanisms that like mystery is created and, and, and we're left with questions and... I just think it's quite clever. It's it's quite a clever... It's not the... Like, if you piece together the logic of the episode, it, it basically makes no sense. Like, I'd love to know why it is Billy has to carry people into the forest for the aliens, because that doesn't seem to be the case for other alien abduction stories. Most Usually people are in their beds or on their TV, you know, sofas alone watching TV or something. But... Um, but it doesn't matter because just the the narrative and the way it's all pieced together works just don't mm. think about it too hard yeah I, th I think you can also see that in the fact that billy is in bed and he's sort of in a, a vegetative state yeah. essentially or like a waking coma you know where he is you know his eyes are open but he can't do anything so that's why he's not initially seen as maybe a suspect in this weird stuff that's going on because mm. he's in bed all the time and then uh, at the end of the towards the end of the episode scully like looks at his feet and realizes that they have some of the same material on that they found in the forest and things mm -hmm. like that and that's that's real kind of classic detective storytelling yeah. like, i feel like i've seen at least five or six episodes of various detective shows where like there's a character in a wheelchair and then they get caught out for being a murderer because someone looks at their shoes and notices <laughs> they're like scuffed and they've got mud on or whatever but um it's the sort of like i think really kind of basic procedural storytelling that the show is is actually quite good at on a basic level yeah. that is really helpful was probably really helpful in allowing it to get a bit of a bigger audience than if it had just been a sci-fi show like you can follow along and kind of piece together the clues as they are even if because it's fantastical like the broader context is not necessarily something that will be explained like you said like we don't know why the aliens do things this way it's just that's the way the aliens work i guess <laughs> but, but Mulder and scully together are able to kind of like piece together enough information to to reach a conclusion um yeah. of their own at least yeah sort of i do love how upon being like holy moly this kid who's in a vegetative state um he killed those kids, but how did he do it? You know, he's in a vegetative state. So Scully's freaking out, like, what the hell? Um, 
And then Mulder's like pulling her back, being like, yeah, but what about these things? And it's like, maybe we should go and check this. And um, I just like the way that that John put it, because he was like, you know, saying that essentially Mulder was reminding Scully that she's the designated driver. She's the one <laughs> <laughs> she's the one who's meant to be being rational um and doing things according to the kind of scientific method as much as possible. Um, mm. you know, by reminding her that she has to she has to put it yeah, he doesn't want to put words in her mouth because she has to write it in her report. Um Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all in all it's a pretty spiffing episode of the X-Files. Yeah, a pretty good start. And the only other thing that I had here that it introduces is the number 1121, which is a recurring Easter egg in the X-Files. It's uh, Chris Carter's wife's birthday. appears oh. on the alarm clock when Mulder wakes up. Or Scully's Scully, lying of... in bed. Uh, do you mean yeah. at the very end? Yes. Yeah, Scully's lying uh, in bed. Yeah, and then, so yeah. that's that's one for the eleven twenty one counter. There's a couple of other numbers that recur, but that's I feel like that's the one that mm. I always notice. Do you think that if we watch the X Files closely enough, we can make a note enough of these things to be able to break um, Chris Carter's security information on his emails? Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely feel that that's probably been his pin number at some point. Yeah, this is before the days of like um, cybersecurity and and uh, all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, before biometrics. Well, yeah, but, you know... Do you remember these uh, quizzes that used to be going around on MySpace and Facebook and stuff that would just ask you, like, a 101 kind of questions, mm-hmm. like, your favourite book and your favourite band and, like, all of these things? And I'm just like, dear God, I hope I remember to delete all of those things. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise someone's well getting into my bank account. <laughs> Yeah, I remember those. I I also sometimes feel that way whenever there are like uh, prompt tweets on Twitter where it's kind of like, what was your favorite movie when you were 18 or whatever? And it's kind of like someone's going to figure out what year I was born. <laughs> and then that's they're going to use that somehow uh... to uh, discover some, some break into my bank account. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The File Room. Uh, I've been Edwin Davis. I'm Michaela Livingston Banks. Our music is by Lionel Cassio. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter at the file room Pod and email us at thefileroompod at gmail.com. If, uh, yeah, if you want to send us any your thoughts about this episode, about the X-Files in general, paranormal experiences in your own life, we'd love to hear that. Uh, also, please rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. Uh, We'll be back next time with episode two of The X-Files, Deep Throat, another very important one that introduces a lot of big things. Uh, But until then, it's goodbye from me. And bye from me. It is real.